Well, good morning. Good morning. We love mothers at Liberty Baptist Church, which is why we preach Jesus every week. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 6. We're looking at verses 9 through 14, famously called the Lord's Prayer. I wonder if anybody ever taught you to pray. Did anybody ever take you aside, maybe a parent or a Sunday school teacher, somebody take you inside and, and say, you know, clasp your hands, bow your head, close your eyes. These are the words to say. Maybe somebody gave you instruction, direct instruction on prayer. Nobody really ever taught me to pray. I don't remember any sort of direct instructions on it. Uh, maybe some indirect, right? My, my father would pray at dinner time. Um, I heard prayers at church, of course, and in Sunday school and uh, the Christian school that I attended when I was a child. Um, all the lessons that I picked up on prayer, I had to pick up by example, by just kind of observing what was going on around me. Somebody modeling for me what prayer was like. And as you can imagine, I learned some good things, but I also learned some weird things. And I had to spend some time throughout my life figuring out how to unlearn some of the lessons that I had learned about prayer. Um, I, I think one of the things that I've learned is that a lot of people are prone to giving out rules for prayer that I think sometimes aren't great at inclining people to pray. So like, for instance, there was a season of life where I remember people would say, you shouldn't be praying for little things, right? Um, you're, you're kind of busying God, right? He's not interested in all these little things. I remember uh, feeling convicted uh, about pulling into a shopping center and asking the Lord for a, a good parking place, right? Um, a good parking spot, uh, which, you know, is not exactly a kingdom priority or anything like that. But then I would feel guilty about it. And I think sometimes when we put these arbitrary rules out, we actually sort of quench people's um, inclination to pray when we start coming up with all these little rules. Well, don't pray about that. Don't pray about this. As if God, who is omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient, would be too busy, right, to hear anything that you'd have to say to him anyway. I sometimes wonder if people would be more inclined to prayer if we offered them fewer rules and more guidance. So as, as, I, um, as I was studying this passage this week in preparation for the message, the thing that struck me the most really was just how kind it, it is of Jesus to teach his followers how to pray. Uh, these grown men who grew up in the Jewish tradition, and here's Jesus saying, look, pray like this. He's actually giving them direct, explicit teaching on how to pray. And what we notice is, he, he, yeah, there's some rules here, perhaps, but he's not giving them primarily rules for prayer, but really a, a ruler for prayer, a guide for prayer. So let's begin reading Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would bless the preaching of it. Help us to open our hearts in prayer to you through the example of your son, Jesus. 
and help us to see above all things his glory that we might be changed by it. And it's in his name that we pray these things in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, this is, of course, uh, the most famous prayer in the Bible, maybe neck and neck with Psalm 23. Um, if anyone outside of church tradition or outside, you know, Christian tradition knows a prayer in the Bible, it's typically the Lord's Prayer. It was even a popular song in the 1970s. I don't know if any of you all if old enough to remember that. You all are all young people, so you don't know that. But there was a nun who had a hit song on pop radio singing the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes I hear it on my satellite radio because I listen to the 70s station a lot. And I kind of look, there's the Lord's Prayer in a pop song. And, you know, right before, you know, the Bee Gees or something. So people know it, they, you know, they recite it at weddings, it becomes sort of a part of the popular culture, um, but you'll notice the CSB, for instance, like some other modern translations, doesn't include what's usually at the end of the recitation of the Lord's Prayer, sometimes called the traditional doxology, we find it in the King James Version, for instance, and in some other older translations, it goes, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, Amen. Well, there's some controversy related to whether this doxology should be included, actually, in the scriptures. The earliest manuscripts available to us of Matthew's gospel do not include that latter portion that's so famous today. Um, that ending appears to have emerged around the second century, uh, perhaps first appearing in the Didache, which is a, a kind of Christian manual attributed to the early church fathers. So later manuscripts of Matthew's gospel do include the doxology. Um, the manuscripts that the King James Version, for instance, relied on had the doxology in there, and that's why the King James Version includes it. Um, but those are probably influenced by tradition rather than the other way around, scripture influencing tradition, tradition influencing the, um, the copying of manuscripts. Scribes coming along, they get to this portion because of tradition, because of the formalizing of the doxology, they think, oh, right, this is the right place to put this, and they'll put it in those later manuscripts. But because it's not found in the earliest manuscripts we have of Matthew's gospel, it's probably not original to the text. The prayer that is original to the text, however, is really the continuation of Jesus' instruction on prayer in the passage that begins in verse 5, which Pastor Bobby preached on last week. If you have your Bible open, you can see that previous passage is instruction on prayer also. The entire instruction on prayer, in, in fact, verses 5 all the way to verse 15, is really a continuation of Jesus' teaching on sincerity, um, his teaching against self-righteousness, against hypocrisy, and so the Lord's Prayer is, um, rather than some sort of sentimental, sweet recitation, it's an illustration in the Sermon on the Mount that's meant to help his hearers apply his teaching on righteousness and model for them what a kingdom-minded prayer looks like. What, according to Jesus, are the characteristics of prayer? What is prayer, according to Jesus? Well, the first thing that we see from this model that he gives us is that the spirit of prayer is reverence. The spirit of prayer is reverence. The Lord's Prayer begins with an appropriate addressing of the object of prayer, God himself. Now, you might wonder, who else would we be praying to? If, I mean, in prayer, we're praying to God. Who else would we be praying to in our prayer? But in the context of this passage, we note that Jesus is rebuking a kind of performative religion, a parading of one's righteousness in front of others to impress people or maybe even to shame them or to intimidate them. 
It's sort of like I remember, you know, taking my daughters to the dentist when they were little girls. And the dental hygienists always were just like ninjas at passive aggression. I don't know. <laughs> they had it down. And so they would be talking to me, but through my daughter. So they would say, now you need to remind daddy to, to brush your teeth or, you know, your twofers every night. Get the sugar bugs out. And I'm like, I'm standing right here. If you have a message for me, you speak to me. You don't like send this passive aggressive stinger missile through, you know, through the kids to me. You need to tell daddy to do these things, right? Talk to me. I'm the one that's right here. Well, Jesus in verses 6 through 8 is addressing a phenomenon that's kind of like that, where people are so showy with their religiosity. I'm talking to God, everybody. You know, they're, they're, they're doing this prayer in front of everyone, and they're not really doing it for God. And they're not really even speaking to God. They're trying to speak to others using prayer as the pretense for some sort of religious parade. They're trying to exert or intimidate or even guilt or even shame the people around them. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus says in prayer to remember who we're talking to. And in verse 9, he makes that explicitly clear. Notice how he instructs his disciples to address God. Our Father in heaven. Your name be honored as holy. These are, of course, echoes of the first three commandments, right? That we would have no other gods before God. That we would not make any idols to worship. And thirdly, that we do not take the Lord's name in vain. So the posture of this prayer is worshipful. It's submissive. It's, it's humble. Because the object of the prayer is glorious and sovereign and divine. This is the origin of closing our eyes and folding our hands and bowing our heads and bending our knees to pray. These are signs of reverence before God. Now, you don't have to show your reverence exactly like that. Jesus nowhere says the way that you pray is you have to close your eyes or you have to hold, you know, fold your hands or you have to be down on your knees, right? You can pray with your eyes open. You can pray with your hands lifted or your hands in your pockets, you can pray with your head bowed or with your head lifted up, watching the cars as you drive and watching the road, right? Or watching your kids as they play. However the you know, physical circumstances strike you for the occasion to prayer, your prayer still, nevertheless, must have a spirit of reverence to it. You're not talking to someone ordinary. You're not talking to someone created. In prayer, you're talking to the one true God. This is why the prayer begins with an exaltation of God and an acknowledgement of God's godness. Even the emphasis of verse 10 indicates this. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my kingdom, not my will. We might request things that we need and things that we want. We'll say a little bit more on that in a moment because Jesus does. But the first priority is God's kingdom and God's will. Even Jesus prayed this way in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, before the crucifixion. He says to the Father, if there's any other way for this to be done, let this cup pass from me. But he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. All of this indicates to us that wherever we're praying, whatever we're praying for, the spirit of that prayer should be respectful. The prayer itself reflects a hallowing to use the King James language, an honoring of God's name. So prayer might be physically casual, but it still should be spiritually reverent. 
It can be informal, but it still must be reverent. It can be real. It can even be messy and broken and scattered and incoherent, perhaps, verbally. But it should also be reverent. A spirit of reverence and prayer is how we show that we know that God is holy. But it's also a way that we show that the practice of prayer is making us holy. This is how the practice of prayer makes us more holy. First of all, it conforms us to the image of Christ who himself prayed. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. If we want to be like Jesus, we'll be praying people because Jesus himself was a praying person. Prayer also makes us more holy precisely because in prayer we're drawing up close to the Holy One of Israel himself to come into conversation with the one that the scriptures call holy, holy, holy. It's to come into the transforming presence of holiness. Like Noah built an altar, like Moses took off his sandals, like Samuel raised the Ebenezer stone, we know that to come into the presence of God is special and sacred, and holy. No matter where we are or what circumstances we find ourselves in, we come to prayer with the knowledge that we are entering into the presence of our God who is a consuming fire. And we keep this in mind, even as we note that the use of Father in relation to God is a relative innovation by Jesus. Jesus is really the one who sort of, he's not the first one to refer to God as Father, but he really innovates it as a normative Um, addressing of God. The Old Testament contains some references to God as father, but it's more of an, in an analogical way, like God's fatherly care or God is like a father, things like that. Jesus, however, is relating to God directly as his father, and he instructs us to do the same. It's not just the special relationship he has, it's a special relationship because of him that we have. Through Christ's saving work on the cross and out of the tomb, you and I are adopted as sons and daughters of God. And we get to relate to God as our Father. But there are some modern innovations in understanding this relationship we need to be careful about to maintain the reverence that this Father is due. Since the popularity of um, the book The Shack several years ago, among some other things, The understanding or the application of the root word Abba, which is the word behind the word Father there, it's influenced some Christians to, in prayer, uh, to refer to God as Daddy, right? Or sometimes Daddy God. (laughs) It's kind of gross. Um, (laughs) That's not quite the intention here. Um, It doesn't quite, Daddy God doesn't quite capture the substance of what Jesus is doing. It's probably okay to help others think about the access they have in prayer by using the example of like, think of it as talking to dad. I've used that example before, but we're speaking about access, the ease of access there. We're not talking about how you specifically address the father. And I don't think there's anything necessarily sinful about praying the words daddy or daddy God or something like that. But the novelty of it, the cutesiness of it, kind of cuts against the reverence that we're supposed to have in prayer. Because for Jesus to call God Abba and to tell us to do that also isn't to suggest a casualness to God, but an intimacy with him. 
So I think calling God Father is the more appropriate language for us. Because the word Father indicates our adoption in the gospel. Yes, we have ease of access. We have a relationship with him. But it also connotes his authority over us. He's not just our Father, after all. He's our Father in heaven. So when we pray, we're entering the sacred living room of our heavenly Father. And prayer is a vital part of our communion with the God of the universe. C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, he says the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his ordinary prayers. In other words, no matter your circumstances, the context of your prayer, no matter how ordinary or drab or disorganized, prayer situates you in the life of the triune God. And God is your friend but he's not your buddy. God is not the big man upstairs. He is the sovereign king of all creation. He's not a force. He's not a feeling. He's not a vibe. He is God. And so we talk to him like he's God. The spirit of prayer is reverence. Secondly, however, we see in this prayer what the essence or the substance, the posture of prayer should be. The essence of prayer is need. The essence of prayer is need. What is prayer after all? But it's, it's a kind of expressed helplessness. In fact, I've come to see the times when I'm not engaged in prayer, when I am, um, you know, day by day going through a kind of prayerlessness, it's because in some way I'm relying on my own self-sufficiency. Um, even if I, you know, can't figure something out, even if I can't figure it out mentally, physically, I don't know how something's going to be supplied that I need, If I'm not praying, it's because in some way I think, I got this. I can figure it out. I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. Something. I can manage this myself. When I pray, however, I'm acknowledging I do not have this. I'm utterly dependent on the God of all. Prayerlessness is self-righteousness. So we pray because God has things that we don't have, knows things that we don't know, is able to do things that we can't do and is something that we can't be. We pray because God is God and we are not. Robert Murray McShane says, what a man is on his knees, that he is and no more. What does he mean? It means prayer reduces us to our finest point. It reminds us of who we really are, especially in the light of the glory of our all-powerful God. It's this utter dependence of us on him that's at the heart of the personal petitions in the Lord's prayer. The the reason we ask for things is because God is the supplier, we are the needy. Later, uh, the Apostle Paul will appropriate a poet to proclaim that it's in God that we live and move and have our being. In other words, we don't exist without God. We don't get out of bed without God. We don't breathe without God. We can't live without God. Which is why the first personal petition is so fundamental. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. It's it's okay in prayer to ask for the things that you want. But the example given by Jesus here is a prayer for basic needs. This expresses dependence upon God over and above presumption upon God. I'll ask God for the stuff I want. I can take care of the stuff I need. 
Jesus is, say, is here saying, no, the food you eat, the air you breathe, the roof you sleep under, you ask God for that or you thank him for it. 1 Peter 5, 7 says to cast all of your cares upon God because he cares for you. If anybody knew what it was like to pray for daily bread, it was a man by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller was a, a, a missionary in England in the early 1800s. He was known from church history. He's known from church history for two primary things. Um, first, his, his ministry to orphans and his, uh, um, his just deep-seated, heartfelt, life-oriented care for those without homes, without parents. Secondly, he was known for his commitment to prayers of dependency. Not just sentimental prayers, not just rote routine prayers, but prayers of, this ain't going to happen, Lord, unless you come through. Mueller raised funds to build numerous um, orphanages in his time, and he made a radical commitment to rely on the Lord's provision for their support, both financial and material. He had made a commitment, basically, not to ask anyone for money, but God. There was one night, the story goes, that George had retired to his study for his evening prayers when his wife interrupted to say, the orphanage is, is, is out of milk. There's no milk with which to make the morning oatmeal. Basically, the orphans are not going to have breakfast tomorrow. According to Guideposts magazine, Mueller rose from his desk and rather than send a letter out to someone, hey, we need money for milk, or, you know, you could make a phone call then, but, but make a phone call, send an email, Instead, he reached out for his wife's hand and said, Mary, let us pray. And two orphanage employees joined them, and together they made their humble yet necessary request to God. Tiny helpless mouths were depending on them for sustenance. Be assured, if you walk with him and look to him and expect help from him, George reminded them afterwards, he will never fail you. When they were done praying, someone knocked on the door. Mary hurried to answer and returned to the study a moment later. She handed her husband an envelope. It's a letter. George, hurry up and open it. Enclosed was a sum of money, more than enough for the milk. Within minutes, two more letters arrived with money and pledges of support. Faced with difficulties regarding the rented houses where the children lived, Mueller dreamed of building an orphan's home on its own land and with every amenity. He took 18 months to amass the initial sum of money, and throughout that time, he counted the days he spent in prayer and recorded the funds as they trickled in. Each donation, God's answer to his prayer, rather than the fruit of a plea to man for money, spurred him to continue. And eventually, he built five homes, costing more than $100,000 to build, over $14 million in today's currency. These institutions were models at the time, actually, where very few such places existed. Many orphans lived on the streets, or they went to poorhouses where they were treated like slaves. Maybe if you read some Dickens, you can kind of see the background. In the Mueller homes, however, each child was tenderly cared for, clothed, fed, educated with Christian instruction as the bedrock. When they left the orphanage in their late teens, they went on to live productive lives. And George raised each and every penny for this wonderful ministry on his knees through unceasing, persistent, and thankful prayer and an unwavering faith in God. Now, you and I might not adopt George Mueller's radical commitment never to ask another man for money, but we should all adopt George Mueller's radical commitment to dependency upon God. After all, as Jesus says later in verse 26 of this chapter, consider the birds of the sky. 
They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Or as Paul puts it in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Not some of your needs, all of your needs. And what is a more basic need than to be forgiven? And we turn to the next petition for this, verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In this personal petition, we ask our Father to forgive us. Matthew uses the word debts here. One might construe the wording to refer to a kind of material indebtedness. Uh, Dan Doriani in his commentary points out that debts in Matthew can't refer to literal financial debts because humans can't owe God money, right? This has to refer to a kind of spiritual indebtedness. Forgive our trespasses, some translations will put it. In, in Luke's version of the prayer, it's, it's just um, explicitly, forgive us our sins. The pairing is interesting, however. The, the pairing of forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, I find really curious and somewhat challenging. Because the way Jesus phrases it here is that we come to ask for forgiveness in the present, having already forgiven, past tense, those who've sinned against us. It's an important reminder to us that forgiven people forgive people. That those who've received grace give grace. And the way these are so connected in the prayer reminds us that a hardened heart cannot receive the grace of God. A hardened heart comes to prayer with a sense of entitlement. I believe this is what Jesus means in his his coda to the prayer. Verses 14 and 15 are not a part of the prayer. They're sort of a, a, a concluding teaching or reflection upon the spirit of the prayer. Verse 14, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. On the surface, it sounds like he's saying that we can somehow merit forgiveness from God by forgiving other people, that he's teaching a kind of meritorious salvation or a legalistic approach to salvation. But a legalistic approach to justification cuts across the anti-religiosity of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Like A huge portion of the Sermon on the Mount is against religion as merit, religion as earning things, right? It, it cuts across the rest of the Gospels, and it cuts across the rest of the New Testament, actually, which teaches us that justification is by grace alone, received through faith alone. So I don't think that Jesus is saying that our forgiveness by God is contingent upon being perfect forgivers. But I do think he's saying that our forgiveness by God will make us forgivers. And if we are not forgivers, we bring into question whether we know the forgiveness of God. And in fact, his, his, his forgiveness of us is not contingent on us being perfect forgivers, but upon us being repentant forgivers. Jesus is warning us that coming to prayer with him to ask for grace that we're unwilling to be changed by, unwilling to extend to others, is a prayer of religious presumption. It's a prayer of entitlement. Lord, treat me well, and then we walk away to treat others poorly. Is that not a self-righteous prayer? Is it not a presumptuous, prideful sort of prayer? Is that the kind of prayer that God would bless? A prayer of entitlement is not a needy prayer. It's a prideful prayer. 
prayer. It's reminiscent of the psalmist in Psalm 66, verse 18, saying, If I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. Or I thought of 1 Peter 3, 7 as I was studying this, thinking, is there another place where we see prayer being hindered by how we treat other people? There is. In Peter's instruction to married men, he says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The posture of prayer is important. The posture of our heart is important. Now, all of us approach God as sinners, but how you carry that sin is important. You could pray like the tax collector in Jesus's parable, have mercy on me, God, I am a sinner. That's a posture of need, isn't it? Of desperate dependency. Or you could pray like the Pharisee in that parable. I thank you, God, I'm not like the tax collector. A position of self-righteousness, of entitlement. And I think this is why Jesus embeds the condition in the prayer itself. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It's warning us against presuming upon God's forgiveness. As if justification is a personal entitlement that doesn't really need to change us at all. As we have forgiven our debtors shows us that we are humbling ourselves and not hypocritically assuming that God's forgiveness of us while we withhold that forgiveness of others. That's not the evidence of a repentant heart. Jesus makes this even more weighty in Matthew 18 when he tells a story in response to a question from Peter. Peter comes to ask, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? Peter thinks he's being really generous here, right? That's a lot. Seven times I got to forgive him? And Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. And he doesn't literally mean 490, and then you can stop. It's symbolic of you just keep forgiving. What's the limit of forgiveness from God that you would like? If the Lord should only give you 490s worth of forgiveness, then okay, that's the limit for everybody with you. But if you expect the Lord to forgive you eternally, should we not expect that of ourselves? Jesus goes on to tell a story. He says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He says, when he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me, I'll pay you everything. And the master of that servant had compassion and released him and forgave the loan. That servant then went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay me what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, I'll pay everything back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed. And they went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after the master summoned him to him, the master said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. And Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Commenting on verses 14 and 15 of our focus text, Matthew 6, Myron Augsburger says, Our attitude toward others is an indication of our attitude toward God. One cannot affirm openness to God and his will and then pervert the communication of God's grace to others. The Lord's Prayer helps us get in touch with our sense of neediness before God, including our need to repent of a sense of religious entitlement. The Lord's Prayer enlarges our vision beyond the often overwhelming, but in reality, by comparison, minuscule offerings of a noisy, idolatrous world, and it shrinks our self-sufficiency down to the point of basic need. Don Carson says about the Lord's Prayer, it is for our needs, not our greeds. In fact, the root of the English word to pray means to beg. To beg, which reminds me of the scrap of paper that was found in Martin Luther's coat pocket when he died. On that scrap of paper was scrawled the words, we are beggars. This is true. And Martin Luther, of course, became known for protesting the performative religiosity of the Roman church. And advocating for a centrality of the gospel over against a kind of spirituality based on merit. And some in the Roman Catholic Church still even use this prayer, the Lord's Prayer itself, as a means of penance for our sins. Go away, say X number of Hail Marys, X number of Our Fathers, and you will be absolved. Now, the recitation of the Lord's Prayer, it's been a tradition throughout church history, throughout Christian history, even within Protestantism, of course. The Didache instructed Christians to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And while it's perfectly fine to do that, it's perfectly fine to pray the Lord's Prayer specifically in sincerity, the same way it's good to pray any passage of Scripture, the same way it's good to sing the Psalms, right? We note in verse 9, however, that Jesus doesn't say pray this. He says pray like this. So the prayer is not a formula, right? It's not, these aren't magic words. It's, It's a model, It's a a model of how to bring ourselves, our real selves, our needy selves to God. And we stand always in need of God. One of the questions that kind of arises from the text for me in relation to this neediness too is this. um, Do we have to keep asking God for forgiveness? Like how does that make sense? Didn't Jesus die for our sins once for all time? Like did I somehow lose forgiveness between my last prayer and my current prayer? If I'm eternally forgiven when I'm justified, when I accept Christ or whatever, why should I ask God to forgive my sins in my prayers ongoing? Because he's already forgave all my sins, right? So why should I keep praying for forgiveness? Well, I think it's the same reason we rehearse a time of confession and an announcement of pardon in our worship service, for instance, right? Every week we have a time where we corporately confess, whether through a song or a prayer, something like that. And then there's an announcement of pardon that comes through a song or a scripture reading. It's not, we don't do that because somehow we've become unforgiven during the week. It's not because um, somehow we've lost our salvation during the week. It's because we always want to remind ourselves that our forgiveness is dependent on God. And if we don't keep reminding ourselves of that, we begin to slip into a sense of entitlement, into religious performance, 
into a meritorious way of thinking. We need to remind ourselves that we didn't just need his grace to cover our conversion, but to cover our whole life. And we rehearse the gospel over and over again, not because our salvation is in question or somehow it's not perfected. We're only at a certain percentage and we just need to keep upping that through working out these prayers and confessions. We do it because we want to always acknowledge that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. That we are in need of his grace. Why pray for forgiveness if it's already granted? As verse 8 in this passage right before ours says, your father knows the things you need before you ask him. I mean, if that's true, why pray at all? I mean, if, he already, if he's already decided what he's going to give you, because he already sees into the future and all that sort of thing. Well, we do this for the same reason we pray that God's kingdom will come. The Lord doesn't need us to pray that. He's not like, well, I wanted to send the kingdom, but not enough of you prayed today. We'll try again next week. No, he's going to build his kingdom. It's a guarantee. Christ is building his church. It doesn't rely on you or me at all. He is God. But we pray that his kingdom will come, even though we're guaranteed that it will, because we want to pray, so to speak, with the grain of the gospel. And what a joy is it when you pray for things you know the Lord is going to do, Lord, build your church. Lord, bless your people. Right, you pray for those things. He's going to do them. You see them come through and you think, prayer's powerful. It's so wondrous to pray for things that you know are going to happen because then you get to rejoice. The essence of prayer is need. We're expressing, we need you to do this. We can't do this on our own. Asking for our daily bread is our acknowledgement that everything we need is provided by our holy God. But as the Lord who teaches us to pray has reminded us, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So our greater need is grace. It's better to starve to death, in fact. It's better to starve to death as a depressed Christian than it is to live 150 years and die a fat, happy unbeliever. So yes, pray that God will provide your daily needs. Pray that the Lord would heal your depression. In his kindness, he can and does do both. But better than our daily bread is the bread of life. And when we pray for that, he will not say no. And this leads to the third and final point. The power of prayer is grace. The power of prayer is grace. Like prayer, the gospel itself is predicated on our need, isn't it? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We lack the holiness that we need to enjoy the reconciliation and the presence of God. He is holy, we are not. The gospel is predicated on our need. And we can't save ourselves. We can't somehow, you know, gin up enough of this religiosity. No amount of spiritual merit can earn salvation. The good news then is that Jesus saves us by the grace of his cross and resurrection. 2 Timothy 1.9 he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Or as Romans eleven six 6 says, if it's by grace, it can't be by works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. And because the essence of prayer is need, the power of prayer cannot come from us. If you ever hear someone use the phrase, the power of prayer, or that person's a real prayer warrior, 
Those phrases are great, but we just need to remember the power of prayer does not come from the one praying, but the one being prayed to. Powerful prayers rely on grace, and powerful prayers prioritize the need for grace. I think this is one reason the Lord's prayer prioritizes the coming of God's kingdom. So we remember that the primary purpose of our praying isn't for stuff, but for souls. Let me ask you, do you pray for God's kingdom to come? Do you pray specifically, do you pray for the numeric growth of our church? Better, do you pray for the spiritual growth of our church? Do you pray for the spread of the gospel in your neighborhood and around the world? Do you pray for opportunities to share the gospel? Do you pray for the courage to seek those opportunities out and to seize them when they come? Do you pray for the salvation of the lost around you? Here's a good diagnostic question that I've always found convicting every time I hear it. If God answered all of your prayers this week, how many new souls would be added to the kingdom? If God said yes to all of your requests in prayer this week, how much of his kingdom would be coming into the world as a result? Even the opening request of the Lord's Prayer, may your name be honored as holy, is a request for grace. The power of grace. Because nobody can revere God's name as holy without having a heart transformed by the good news. And the personal petitions that finish off the prayer are reflections of the gospel directly. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 13, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. These are requests that correspond directly to the good news of Jesus Christ. He has gone to die on the cross to forgive our sins, to forgive our debts, and to rise bodily from the grave three days later to triumph over sin and Satan. The good news of Jesus announces that if we will repent of our sin and trust in him alone, we will be forgiven forever and saved into eternal life, into a relationship with him for all eternity, with the one true holy God. Not as our condemner, not as someone stingy, not as someone miserable, but with the one true holy God as our loving, generous, gracious Father. And when we were dead in our trespasses, Paul says in Colossians 2, he made us alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. He erased our debts with all the obligations against us. He took them away, he nailed them to the cross, and he disarmed the evil one publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How? Because, the verse goes on to say, the grace of our Lord Jesus is with you. Grace is not some ethereal virtue. Grace is Jesus. Or as John Calvin puts it, Christ dressed up in the good news. And this gospel of Christ's grace is power. Grace is the power that brings us into this saving relationship by which we can have an open hearing with God in the first place. The very fact that we have a relationship with God as Father is because of God's grace in Christ. Grace even, get this, empowers our prayers. Just as faith is a gift of grace and prayer is an act of faith, prayer is a gift of grace. Paul even says the Holy Spirit helps our prayers. Romans 8.26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. 
because we don't know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And you might think, look, nobody taught me how to pray. My prayers stink. My prayers are awful. Well, even your stinky prayers are saved by grace. No child of God was ever less loved because his prayers were lame. The Lord loves your lame prayers. That we can pray and that he hears us in love is a gift of the gospel. I don't know how you think of God as father. I know sometimes our view of God as father is complicated by our experience or very often inexperienced with our earthly fathers. If you had a father who was cold and distant or abrasive or maybe even abusive, if you had a father who maybe was present and relatively peaceful but just never really seemed to relate to you or never really wanted to connect with you, especially if you never knew your father, it can be difficult to think about prayer as intimacy with the heavenly father, can't it? But our heavenly father who is more holy than any earthly father, even if he had the best dad ever. Our heavenly father is way more holy than that. Is also more available than even the best dad out there. When you darken his doorway in the middle of the night, stuttering for a glass of water for the umpteenth time, refusing to sleep, you should be in bed. He's not irritated with you. In fact, our Father in heaven neither sleeps nor slumbers. You can't wake him up. And he doesn't groan or sigh when you call out. This one again. Doesn't do that. When you cry, he sympathizes. While you hem and haw in your prayers, he patiently smiles. If you fall asleep while praying, he'll still be sitting there when you wake up. If your mind wanders, he stays close. He's never too busy for you or for anything that you want to say to him. When you've blown it again and you knew better. And anybody else would be ready to be done with you. They reached their limit with you. And you drag yourself into the sacred living room of prayer to speak to your heavenly father. He does not have a hand of condemnation for you, but arms of embrace. When you're most intimidated, most anxious, most scared of coming to him, you will find him most eager, most welcoming, most gentle to receive you. As James Boyce says in his commentary on the Lord's Prayer, if God is gracious then we need not to be afraid to ask him for whatever we need at any time. The power of prayer is grace. How gracious and kind of our big brother Jesus to teach us how to talk to our father. He is showing us that the door to dad's office is always open and you're never an interruption to him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all, that you listen to us. You are the Holy One. 
Holy, holy, holy is your name. Above all creation, above all we ask or think or know or feel, you are the end all be all, the alpha and the omega. That you listen to us eagerly and lovingly is too wonderful for us, but we thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would continue to show us the ease we have in speaking to you. Comfort us when we don't have the words, when our heart is in the right place, but our mouths are stumbling. Thank you for loving us and accepting us because of your son, Christ Jesus. So we thank you for him and the gift of the gospel. We thank you for his cross, where his blood washes us white as snow. We thank you for the empty tomb, where his resurrection purchases for us eternal life and the very keys to death and hell. We thank you that the power of the Holy Spirit is put inside of us. Help us to walk in step with the Spirit. And we pray all these things for the fame of your Son, Christ Jesus, and in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.